Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we welcome two guests into the pod to talk about the character and the increasingly troubled times of India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The Prospect regular Andrew Adonis joins us alongside the Cambridge historian Shruti Capella. In the May issue of Prospect, Andrew profiled a man he called Modi the Hologram, a storming electoral success, a spiritualist sectarian, and just about everything apart from what he seems. But in the weeks since, he's facing trouble like never before, as India becomes the epicentre of the world's Covid crisis. Indeed, we were due to be joined by a third guest, Siddharth Varadarajan of The Wire in Delhi, but due to the loss of a colleague in his office from COVID just today, unfortunately, he has had to pull out. First of all, Shruti, you've been in India recently. Just tell us what you saw before we get on to Modi of that situation with COVID. Well, I've, I'm, just, I'm in quarantine in Cambridge as we speak. And uh, the lockdown, I was in India for the very draconian lockdown that was announced last March. It was announced with less than four hours notice. And if you recall, something like millions and millions of India's working poor and laboring poor uh, walked out of the cities on, 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 on their foot. And because really the whole country in terms of the economy, the city and the political process had turned uh, against them. And that already was something very unprecedented. It was since, you know, since the partition, nothing like that had been seen and witnessed in India. And yet, I mean, it was interesting that in the autumn, last autumn, when uh, you had a kind of provincial election and in the epicenter of the migrant uh, uh, world in Bihar, Modi's ally was returned to power. Modi, you know, went to rallies. So he's been in a way, you know, very, very popular and in, in, in indescribably popular, uh, in, in, you know, in, in, in India. And that is something that had stumped all of us. And then of course, just as you know, I returned uh, to Cambridge, uh, it just turned overnight because all through the winter from January onwards, you know, uh, political leaders, cabinet ministers, Modi himself on the eve of um, the day India turned 300,000 plus uh, uh, infections, the, the evening before he was heard saying in a public rally in, in distant Bengal uh, that where there's an election happening as we speak to 
that he'd never seen such massive, uh, you know, massive crowds in support of him. Now, this is really, this is really where it's at. You have high deaths, uh, hospitals that cannot cope, and you have, as it were, the election cycle, which seems to matter a lot to Modi, in full drive. Doesn't sound like a good combination. I mean, Andrew, I know you read up very closely on Modi and his, you know, the, the, the way he had quite a Teflon character. He'd had lots of kind of things where he'd been very close to serious trouble, but kept just enough distance a lot of the time in order to be this huge electoral success. Do you think that, like, you know, in the very short period since you wrote this piece, this one might be different? It looks like a continuation of what went before, which is brilliant campaigning, terrible governments. This is the extraordinary paradox of uh, Narendra Modi and trying to explain it. I think Shruti's work on Indian democracy goes to the absolute heart of the issue, because what uh, Modi seems to be doing, I'm an outsider who was looking in, is whipping up a virulent form of Hindu nationalism, which he has turned into a very electorally potent brand. It has worked uh, electorally. He's, as it were, moved on from the formal secularism of of, of the Gandhis and Congress towards a, 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 a much more sectarian and passionate and so far electorally successful uh, brand. And he's also turned it into a very personal brand. He is a genuinely popular populist. Many of the populists aren't particularly popular and indeed they have to virtually abolish democracy in order to succeed. And as we know, Trump never actually won an election. He lost the second one uh, by all the rules and on the first one he only got in having lost the popular vote by you know a, a very peculiar constitutional system whereas nobody doubts that in the two big general elections that Modi has fought he has won and what's going on in West Bengal that Shruti just referred to at the moment I think is absolutely critical to the future of India in many ways because what you've got is him raising the stakes yet again in the in the the Hindu nationalist appeal that he's seeking to make, you know, going on about these ra these record size of rallies, a state that's been traditionally left wing, which if he gets it may start even to to move the balance in the upper house of the Indian Parliament that could in due course even allow him to start changing the constitution, which I suspect is where he wants to go. But in the real world, the actual act of government, he is facing an unprecedented crisis and he's trying to pretend that what's happening isn't happening. He won't even admit properly that there's this massive oxygen shortage, that he hasn't got a proper programme in place for vaccinations and so on. So the issue is whether for the first time in his uh, now, whatever it is, eight years as Prime Minister of India and 20 years of his political career because he was First Minister of Gujarat before, reality actually catches up with him. My reading of it, and I'd be really interested in Shruti's uh, comments on this, is what he's managed to do so far is a kind of political Ponzi scheme that yeah. as one crisis hits, what he does is to make even bigger claims, whip up an even bigger nationalist backlash against his opponents, but also sense of real enthusiasm amongst his supporters who are very, very passionate in this nationalist Hindu movement. But now, with this massive 300,000 infections COVID crisis, it may be that he cannot actually deal with a failing reality by seeking to whip up even more extreme nationalist sentiments. And I'd be really interested in Shruti's views as whether this may be the actual moment of reckoning for a Modi who's managed to escape from all moments of reckoning and just win larger majorities up until let's, now. Let's, let's bring Shruti in on that. But also, both of you, I'm really interested in the backstory because I know you've written elsewhere, Shruti, and I think the print 
about how plagues have had a role in India's um, politics historically, and so maybe this will be another one. So tell us about that, and also comment yeah, as, as Andrew. I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on here, and uh, Andrew's profile was actually very useful because even though it did not come from an insider's view, it was helpful in actually casting the net wide and actually giving um, you know sometimes actually outsiders can be can be can be most uh, most insightful. So I, I wanted to just say a couple of things that why Modi is popular. One that he has remade nationalism. This is not simply Hindu nationalism. It is Hindu nationalism plus plus because what he does is that he if you go back to 2016 when overnight much like the lockdown he announced you know the, the, the withdrawal of India's currency or demonetization overnight in 2016, everyone was you know suffering. So what uh, what Modi did is that he kind of forges a new band uh, bond amongst Indians where a kind of suffering becomes common to everybody. And the rich, the poor, uh, the high caste, the low caste, everyone lost their currency overnight, and that kind of forges a new bond. Uh, and that this suffering is then sort of as it were pegged on to a loftier idea of, as it were, national duty to fight corruption, uh, or in the case of the lockdown, it was COVID. But I think this is a turning point because death has become sectional. Because in a way, uh, the, the burning of funeral pyres in, in, on public, in public squares in India, crematoria are running out of you know, spaces. You know, there are, if you look at India's social media, it is filled with two kinds of things. One, desperate appeals by doctors and private members for, for oxygen, for private citizens. And the other is people complaining or crying that they can't even get their dead, uh, dead to the crematoria and get them you know, burned or cremated or, or buried in a timely fashion. Now this is in a way, in a, in a way that this suffering has not only gone public, but there is no nationalist ideal to peg this on. In fact, Modi looks incredibly sectional because he has demanded votes out of Bengal, where he's actually up against not a left-leaning leader, but another populist leader. So there's a contest of populisms going on in, in, in India. So I think he will come off. I mean, I don't think this is a turning point. Now, if the BJP and Modi survive, they survive this, they'll survive anything. Uh, then you can say that this is uh, an endless uh, reign. But I think that he also managed this because his personality has been mentioned uh, by, by Andrew in his profile and even now. It's a, it's a very, um, it's, a, it's, it's an incredibly subliminal, uh, subliminal, but incredibly powerful bond Indians have with Modi because he is seen to be someone much like what happened to America, what happened to Britain, but you know, perhaps more in, in, a, in a much more paradoxical manner uh, because both Trump and Johnson uh, were well-off people, members of the established elite. But whereas Modi really does come from a non-upper caste background, he really did come from nowhere. And he took on, as it were, this great beast of India's, India's kind of uh, democracy. By the same token, whether uh, the BJP has shown itself as something which has got no depth, no administrative mouse, uh, to manage uh, uh, to manage something like such a big uh, big crisis. In fact, its two major economic legislations were tabled by the Congress, which was a centralized taxation system uh, as well as universal uh, identification. But these are, I suppose, you know, uh, Modi can never be charged with 
doing the boring work of policy and governance. You know, it is all high drama. This is the problem. And and Indians are, you know, Indians have been kind of caught in this vortex of his 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 speeches, his oratory, uh, the drama. You know, you people are always expecting some some declaration. I'm sorry, I've, I've sort of gone on, but to take it backwards, I mean, I think the question is what gives? And I think I recently made a historical comparison between 19th century famines where millions died as, as opposed to 10 years later, the plague in Bombay where far fewer people died, but that was a turning point for India's mass politics. That's the plague birthed India's mass politics. And the reason is really the spectacle of death. You, you know, and this is also the difference between, say, 19th century famines as well as 1943 famine, uh, which was Churchill's famine, you know, the empire's final undoing. And I think these, uh, even Modi, who has been so controlling of the media, which is why our missing guest Siddharth has become a bit of an, a kind of hero for India's liberal uh, world, uh, because he's just stood there reporting. Now, even the kind of most mainstream media has started writing about these deaths. This is a tipping point, you know. Um, uh, those very outlets, particularly say about something like the Times of India, its journalists yesterday appealed to their executives saying, we've got to stop this. Uh, you know, people are really dying. So, so just, just to come back on one, one specific point that Shruti said, one of the things that I find really striking looking at India at the moment, just looking at the news in the last few days, is you have this apocalyptic pandemic taking place and you've got the prime minister spending his time going around doing massive political rallies. It reminds me of the end of Trump, where again, you had uh, COVID raging across the United States and you had Trump outside Congress inciting right-wing fanatics to start invading the building. It's this massive disjunction. And one of the things I was trying to develop in my profile that I now see with much greater clarity when you look at how Modi is mismanaging the COVID situation, is it's not just that he's not particularly good at government. It isn't indeed his primary focus. Okay. His primary focus is a very sectarian political campaign to get the upper hand and to sustain his power and to turn it into a mass movement that will fundamentally change India. This business of government is almost incidental to him. <laughs> but of course, it is what he's supposed to be doing. And that may be why it's catching up with him finally. First of all, Andrew, I want to ask you about his story, you know, wh where he comes from and how he ended up in these stadiums with giant holograms of himself. Like, uh, but Shruti said he's got a very ordinary beginning. So just tell us about how he climbed to the top, Andrew. I think Shruti has just made a very important point. He is a, a populist who comes from the people which isn't, if you look at the international wave of populists we've got at the moment, that's not standard. It's true of Erdogan of Turkey. It's not true of Trump of America. It's not true of Johnson of Britain, as, as British listeners uh, will know. Johnson's about as elite as it's possible to be. He went to Eton, which is the most elite school in the University of Oxford and so on. He's got a kind of Bertie Wooster, P.G. Woodhouse ability to sound... Uh, it, interesting and exciting to, to people who like that kind of, of upper-class uh, eccentric, but it's absolutely not from the people. Uh, whereas Modi, you know, the son of a tea vendor, 
uh, from uh, Gujarat, who's very good at parading his roots and lives the life of, uh, at least parades the life of a kind of sage and hermit. I mean, couldn't be, particularly in a very religious-based society, couldn't be more attuned to the political mainstream that he's developing. And that, I think, has helped to make him extremely popular. He, he's clearly become a brand as well as a leader. And one of the things I found so striking, which goes to the heart of the hologram, is that the brand is so strong that most of his followers, who particularly those that come from this uh, this extreme Hindu nationalist tradition, completely discount the reality of governmental failure and what he actually does in favour of the image and the brand. And I think a big question for the moment is whether reality will now dawn or whether he can continue to suspend disbelief, which I think goes to the heart of the image of the hologram. Literally, this non-existent person appears and is beamed in, which is roughly his relationship with a lot of his followers at the moment. Will reality, will he become an actual physical entity who's judged on what he does, rather than a kind of religious, almost deified personality beamed in from above? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And Shruti, could you give us a bit of a backstory on the BJP? People will have heard of it as the party that's now in charge of India. But for a long time, of course, India, for a very long time, India was run by essentially secularist parties, wasn't it? So where did it come from and how did things change? Well, most immediately, I think, just in response to, uh, to Andrew, and then I'll give a quick thumbnail a sketch. I mean, the BJP is certainly a young party in India's democratic history. It's sort of only really comes up as a rebranded party in in the mid 80s. And it's a phenomenal rise to power in terms of just having two MPs in 1984 uh, to kind of taking this kind of huge brute majority of the Indian parliament uh, today, but not just once, but twice, 2014 and in 2019. The only thing I'd like to just sort of say is that while this is a tipping point uh, for Modi's uh, popularity, the general election in India is three years away. 
So what is the price going to be extracted is not easy uh, to say. But yes, uh, Modi has taken very self-consciously, certainly in his second victory in 2019, to remake India, to remake Indians, whether it is the constitution, whether it is nationalism, uh, whether it is uh, you know, the economy. And the BJP first came to power on the back of a very emotive uh, a campaign, which was run like a social movement campaign. It was not simply an electoral campaign, but it was a social movement for the installation of a temple for Lord Ram in the city of Ayodhya, where a Mughal mosque once stood, uh, which is by Babur. And this mosque was raised down physically by BJP supporters in 1992. And that really was a turning point for, as it were, the rise of Hindu nationalism as a political creed in India. And people may have believed in it, uh, but it was pretty fringe and marginal up until up until then. And that was, in, in a way, Modi continues that tradition where campaigning becomes very important to, to, to winning. But he changed in 2014, this is where the irony lies, when he came to power, he actually dropped Hindu nationalism or Hindutva overtly in his campaigns and speeches. It was all about the economy. It was all about development from below. It was all about how every Indian had the right to be aspirational and to, uh, and to, ri uh, to rise up. And he did win some plaudits, didn't he, in that face from kind of right-wing liberals like The Economist magazine. Absolutely. I mean, in 2014, I mean, you know, I mean, this, I don't want to do a hall of shame here, the number of Indian liberals too, who welcomed his, uh, who welcomed him, uh, his candidature was astounding, because everyone knew that in 2002, he had lost international reputation, and even the right to enter the United States, because of his record of a Muslim pogrom, the largest Muslim pogrom in India, in, in, in Gujarat, which he was running at that point. So the idea that he would not be a Hindu nationalist should not have fooled anybody. But it's interesting that he waited for his second term, where, where, where he came with a bigger majority, to assert and prosecute a much more exclusive agenda, particularly on Kashmir, on the Citizenship Amendment Act, both highly discriminatory elements brought into the, the, in the, in the India's constitution, as well as the Ram Temple, which had started all of this, was finally given legal sanction last November, and it now exists, it will exist. But this is where I think the point about governance, which he also started in 2013-14, he had basically uh, rubbished the Indian National Congress for being party representing bad and corrupt governance, is now going to haunt him. Because after all, COVID, you know, this is a year down the pandemic, and they had one year to prepare. The very fact of hubris of exporting vaccines before you had even done even 10% of your own population is now kind of, you know, these are not hard facts that Indians are likely to ignore in, in, in a hurry. So he will now find the tension which was there with, within his own campaigning for good governance, non-corrupt, speedy, efficient uh, government, which he started with in 2014, versus this hard idea of Hindu nationalism and neo-nationalism, these are now in contradiction with each other. Because India is a very big, very diverse society, and it also has 25 plus states or provinces, uh, and India's federalism is also being tested as we speak. So Andrew, a fairly damning account there from Shruti, but you, you looked through the charge sheet and you found Modi was always you know, a bit sinister, a bit close to the line. But there was this interesting ambivalence that 
he'd hold back from getting his fingerprints kind of over things too too much. He'd leave it for others to do the the sharper sectarianism, if you like. My the view of Modi, having looked at him quite closely, how he operates, is that he is very well attuned in a democracy to whipping up forces which he doesn't then become fully responsible for. That is part of his political style. He understands that in a, a liberal democracy, which has a, a constitution with rights in and things of this kind, India still has. And actually, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't look as if the basis of Indian democracy at the moment is a threat, though it could be in future if, if Modi radicalizes further. He understands that he has to keep just the right side of, of a line in terms of acceptable behavior. However, he's the very forces he's whipping up go beyond that line. And as I look back on it, his record in Gujarat is, is really important in this. And it was never properly resolved what his record was, because two things happened in the uh, 12 years that he was chief minister of Gujarat before he became prime minister of India. The first was an undoubted pogrom, which happened, an undoubted pogrom, thousands of mainly Muslims, but some Hindus too, who were killed in race riots, which came from a terrible incident which which arose from the cultural war, which Shruti described at the beginning. But then he, he wasn't himself held personally accountable for it. It was never properly resolved what his personal role was. But he then did focus on a governmental development record, which he turned into his brand. Now, as I look back on these 12 years as Chief Minister of Gujarat, the very ambiguity that was there, the whipping up of the the extreme nationalism, an actual pogrom that took place, plus an ambivalent record on government reform and government leadership is exactly what we've seen as Prime Minister of India in 2013-14, when he was first running to be Prime Minister of India, because he is so brilliant at media and the previous government was very tired. The Congress had been in for a long period of time. It was quite a weak government. It was mired in corruption and so on. He was able to present a brand without people actually reaching a proper verdict on whether this so-called Gujarat miracle had taken place. It appears it probably hadn't taken place in terms of a, an economic revival. And there was no proper verdict reached on whether he was responsible for the pogrom at the beginning. So the history of Modi, both the way he handles himself in this very ambivalent way, but also the failure, repeated failure of political institutions to hold him to account, is goes to the heart of the predicament that we see at the moment with him as I see it. I mean, I think it's right to go back to his days in Gujarat, if, you, if, you, if I may, for a second. I mean, one of the reasons he was able to sway the, the, the big corporate, I mean, this is also India, which is recently liberalized, say, in 2002, and, and, and onwards. Uh, so, you know, he was able, for instance, in the very controversial case of the Tatars, who had to move their car plant from Bengal because of uh, labor restiveness, and Modi just welcomed them overnight and gave them a big, big, big plot of land to set up the factory. And that really became a big moment, celebratory moment, that this is a man who's not simply about you know the poor but he will also he's very very heavily allied with india's big business whether it's the ambani's or the adanis or very many corporate houses and that was a crucial turning point in you know generating a wider appeal for him secondly he really did 
tried very hard in his first in his first term as prime minister to win international public opinion. I mean, he went on a kind of international campaign, whether to to all the countries to say, well, you know, I'm actually quite a good guy. I mean, these were incidents that happened beyond, as it were, my um, my ken. But I think. Uh, the main point with Modi has been the way he has, as it were, controlled the media, controlled the narrative. And in that case, actually, the hologram is a very important metaphor and reality for him because he innovated what then Trump borrows. I mean, he's the one who actually says traditional media is just a terrible mediator. It's a kind of partisan mediator. And he's never had a press conference you know, after the Godra riots, never held, I mean, even in, in his Gujarat assembly, very little deliberation in the provincial assembly, and all those patterns continued, and and of course gained Twitter and WhatsApp and and social media messaging, which uh, in a way gave him direct access uh, to the people. But now I think that that very potent people's power might uh, might in a way. I mean, I'm 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 not sort of trying to kind of predict anything, but I do think that there is a tiredness, more than tiredness. I think there's a Desperation, desperation in India uh, and helplessness. And India's star has really fallen from being, as it were, you know, an international giver of, as it were, credit and the likes. It's back to the uh, to the bad old days of the 70s when it's looking for to to for aid from America, from Britain, uh, for vaccines and the like. I mean, I don't think even middle class India, which has regained a certain kind of, uh, in, you know, smugness in, in the international world. They're not going to. They're not going to live this one down. Shruti, could you just help us a bit with whether he's likely to be in a position to lock in his government in a way, even if his its popularity does wane? You know, Andrew made the point that as he sees it, Indian democracy is not in peril. The business of elections and votes are not in peril just yet because Modi keeps winning them. But you've written before in our magazine about the idea that India's constitution is rather rewritable. He might uh, get the upper house and be in a business to be able to do that. I mean, do you think we could be looking at India under him turning into a post-democratic state rather than just a post-liberal state? Or do you think that's too gloomy and actually Indian democracy is big enough to see off Modi? Um, I think it's a very important, a very big question. Uh, I definitely think he has it in him to, to kind of declare an emergency or to to kind of as it make India a kind of post democratic state to use uh, to use your your words he de definitely has the numbers and he definitely has as it were a health emergency uh, so the the point would be there but I don't think the restiveness uh, in Indian society can be curtailed this this is a virus which is brooking no boundaries of caste class region uh, and and the death you know i mean it's not even peaked at, at as of now you know but health health uh, health experts are saying that it could go up to half a million and at any given point on daily daily numbers and these are just the official numbers i mean you know you you know you just have to think about what the, the state of devastation might be but the other problem is a more serious i mean equally serious one is an absolute lack of technical and administrative depth that this government has it doesn't have as it were any key economist or you know the, the kind of turn against technocracy that we saw and expertise that we saw in this kind of populist moment in mass democracies is coming to haunt modi the most because he's the one who you know 
uh, contradict, you know, in contrast to Manmohan Singh, who was a very celebrated economist, also like Nehru, like the Congress tradition, had been dependent on a series of technocrats and experts within and without the government. We don't see that. Economists have been told to leave. Uh, you don't really see anyone from the government who's able to command a, a technical, non-partisan voice that can steer, steer and calm the nerves uh, as well, or even just provide factual, uh, credible information. So this is a deep crisis, both for the government, but also Modi, this should be also worrying Modi, and it's anyone's guess how he might react. And Andrew, in the end, we need to sort of draw things to a close now, but the conversation's leading us to think that after all of the hologram years, if you like, this might be one of those moments where the truth turns out to have some power. Well, I was very struck by saying of Barack Obama relative to Trump that he thought American democracy could survive one term of Trump, but he wasn't sure it could survive two terms of Trump. And looking at the way that Trump ended in the horrors of uh, of an attempted insurrection against the result of an election in the United States. I think probably Obama's judgment was correct on that. Listening to Shruti and observing the situation in India, I wonder whether it's the case that Indian democracy is surviving at a price two terms of Modi, but it's an open question whether it would survive a third term of Modi if he won a third landslide victory, particularly if he were to win a number of these crucial state elections, like the one in West Bengal, that could give him a majority in India's upper house that would enable, enable him to start changing the constitution. I'd uh, be very interested in Shruti's parting comments on that, because that could be a sort of frame of thinking about India, that its whole democracy could indeed be up for grabs if there were to be a, a third Modi landslide. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the general election is, of course, three years away, but the Bengal election where, where rallies were happening up until even three days ago is really critical because that gives, that will provide Modi with a boot majority even in the upper house and he can put in a legis legislations, uh, put legislations through. Well, I'm both an optimist and a pessimist. I'm a pessimist when it comes to Modi, so I would think that he will be able to uh, impose draconian measures, uh, but I think he's someone who also loves crowds, who you know. And if he if he has to go the non-democratic way and has to kind of, as it were, be be uh, be distant from the very the, the big crowds that he likes to whip up and and speak to, and if in there's to go post-democratic in that way. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I think definitely he has it in him, his track record uh, and the kind of ways that the kind, some of the directions that the Indian state has taken, one can say that it could go very draconian. But at the same time, I think the international pressure, the fact that India is going to be dependent on international support and aid uh, will give him caution to, to, to push because he can't, he's not going to be elected, you know, there's no general election. He's not up for his own referendum for another three years. But the question is what Tom has just asked. Is it actually, is the, is the democratic rug going to be pulled even before that? Okay, on that hanging question, we'll say that's all from us. So big thanks to Shruti as well as to Andrew. And you can read Andrew's profile of Modi in our latest issue and also at prospectmagazine.co.uk where it's labelled Narendra Modi is everything apart from what he seems. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this week. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.